My name is Ted Turneau. I teach at Anglo-American University. Uh, I teach uh, cultural studies, religious studies, media studies, all the cool classes that you wish you could take, and I teach those. And, uh, and I've been to seminary, got a PhD, all that. So um, I don't know what I'm doing teaching media studies with a theological PhD, but that's how it worked out. I'm happy. And uh, this is an Advent sermon. Like, we're waiting for Christmas. But it's also, for those of you who've lived in Czech Republic, and we've lived in Czech Republic for 23 years, it is the time of year when things get dark, right? Um, this is, the, the world right about now is a dark place, literally. Uh, the days are getting shorter, light is fading, dead plants, bare trees where once there were colorful leaves. Uh, it's just a hard time of year, especially for those who like struggle with the fading of the light. Uh, add to that, a stupid, bloody war that just drags on and on and missiles being fired so that people will freeze to death in the winter. Um, and we don't know what's happening with COVID, prices climbing. It's just hard. It's dark. Um, and that, all that heaviness makes you feel kind of alone, right? Kind of lost in the dark. And for people who deal with depression, the holidays are not a good time. Uh, you can feel especially terribly alone, even when you're with family. For some people, especially when you're with family. So my aim this morning is to encourage this church <clears throat> uh, and have us ask the question, where is God? When things are difficult in our lives, uh, where is he? Is God here? Is he with us or not? So my aim is to encourage you uh, by looking at that question from two different perspectives. The perspective of unbelief and the perspective of John 1, verses 1 through 14. That is the perspective of Christmas. <clears throat> so... Is God with us? Where is God? Most of your friends, if you've lived in this town, most of your friends or co-workers or neighbors, uh, heck, most of the Czech nation already knows the answer. He is nowhere. He doesn't exist. Uh, or if he does exist, he's really, really far away. As the singer-songwriter Nick Cave once sang, I don't believe in an interventionist God. We are, according to this standard view, very much alone. Uh, it's, it's only that you Christians make up these little stories to comfort yourselves to try to feel a little less alone. <clears throat> but uh, the reality is we are. So grow up. Uh, and, and, and they say, it's good that we're alone because then we can be free to live as we choose. Uh, if God, if he existed, would be like big brother in the sky watching you all the time. The choice we have is either we are alone in the universe and free or God exists 
and we are slaves. <clears throat> so, uh, where is God? They respond, he is nowhere. He doesn't exist. Or at least he is out of reach. And good thing too. He's never been anything but a tool for manipulating the weak-minded. So, that way of thinking is foolish and blind because it does not truly understand the human predicament, the desperate and dark situation we truly are in. Let me give you an illustration. When I was a kid, I loved a certain science fiction writer named Ray Bradbury. You may have heard of him. Uh, and one short story he wrote haunted me for years. And it's about a rocket ship that is carrying a crew of men from the earth to the moon. And in the middle of its journey, it explodes. Nobody knows exactly why. The good news is the astronauts are all in their spacesuits, so they have a supply of oxygen, and they're just scattered everywhere. The bad news is none of them have jetpacks on, so they have no control over where they're going. They're just scattered in every direction. Um, they are just drifting, lost in the dark, and very much alone. <clears throat> the only thing that each man knows is that he will die. Uh, depending on your trajectory, you're either going to get caught in the, uh, in the moon's gravity and come crashing down onto the moon, which will kill you, or you'll get caught by the Earth's gravity and you'll incinerate as you enter the atmosphere, or you'll just drift off into space until you die of asphyxiation. The only thing you know for sure is that you will die, and you will die alone. It's pretty clear that this story is meant to be a metaphor, a chilling metaphor of what Ray Bradbury thinks life is like. Life just is a long fall into the dark, into death. Sure, we might have you know, some nice things along the way, you know, a nice job, a nice home, relationships, sex, vacation, uh, beer at the pub, and so forth. But in the end, everybody dies, and everybody dies alone. That is the picture of the world without God, a universe in which we are free. And if we're honest, it's not just our atheist friends who think like this. When we go through hardship, doesn't God seem like he's a million miles away? Um, that's the perspective of unbelief. And I want to tell you that this picture that I've been presenting for the last five minutes or so is a lie. If Christmas is true, then we are definitely not alone. That is what Christmas is all about. It's not about cute yezhishku, panachku, flying in through windows and delivering presents and all that. Um, it's about God invading our darkness with his light. Um, pulling us out of darkness into his light. 
It's about the real freedom that comes from serving our chosen king. It's about that life is more than just vacations and jobs and cars and hockey and beer and so forth. But that there is something more. There's something deeper. There is something worth living for, actually. And God leads you into that. That's what Christmas is about. You could call it incarnation as invasion. So listen to what the Apostle John says in John chapter 1, 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome or understood. We'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. and We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, we do not have time to unpack everything that's in these 14 verses. That would take quite a long time. Um, but let me just focus us on a couple of highlights. Verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So John introduces us to the Word. Why is Jesus called the Word? Because in Jesus, God reveals himself to us fully. He speaks to us through his son. The son dwells with his father in complete intimacy because he is himself God. Here, John is teaching us something of the Trinity. Verses 3 and 4. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life, light, that life was the light of men. So Jesus comes into the world as its creator, as the one who rules over it as its maker. Um, the world of darkness belongs to him. It is sustained by him. He is in charge of it. As creator, he is the source of life for everyone. All right, skipping down to verse 14, first part of it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Okay, and yet, this creator, this word becomes, uh, this sustainer of life every second of every moment becomes human. Now think about that for a moment. What does it mean that the creator becomes human? It means that he has felt what we feel. 
that he knows what it is to be in our place. He knows what it's like to dwell in human skin. And yet, he is in control of sicknesses, of your job situation, of your relationships, of everything. As king, he does not rule from a distance, but as one of us. Therefore, we owe him allegiance. We owe him our trust. Verses 5 and 10 and 11. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And then down in 10 and 11, <clears throat> he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So the creator comes to his own world as a human and finds it dark. Um, the world is his, and yet somehow it's in rebellion against him. How are we to understand this? Why is this happening? Well, part of a help in understanding it is to understand what John means by world, the Greek word cosmos. John does not mean the planet Earth. He does not mean God's creation. Rather, he means God's creation in rebellion against him, alienated from him, a darkness that fights against the light. John here alerts us to the fact that something is terribly, terribly wrong in God's creation. There is darkness here, and it is darkness of our own making. In a sense, our situation is like what Ray Bradbury says it is. We are falling in the dark, and for some twisted reason, we like it that way. We are creatures who are in the habit of rejecting the light. We try to extinguish it. And yet, and yet, verse 5 tells us, because the word, this Jesus, comes with such authority, with such light, with such power, the darkness cannot possibly win. And actually, let's get to that word overcome, translated in the NIV as overcome. Um, maybe... In the ESV, it's overcome as well. The, the, actually, the word actually means two things. It means to understand or overcome. And it's possible that John means to draw on both meanings. In which case, um, not only is the darkness not able to overcome it, but it's not even able to understand it. And that's why he comes to those who are his own and they don't even recognize him. They don't get it. They would not receive him as their king. As creatures of the dark, humans do not respond well to the light. Jesus comes to his own world and finds it dark and hostile, but the light still wins. Verse 9. Uh, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. So John calls this word the true light, implying, of course, that there are false lights out there, that people prefer their false gods to receiving their rightful king. Part of our darkness is that we are drawn towards these lights, things that we would rather rule us than Jesus. When we live for our own glory and not for God's, like Ray Bradbury's astronauts, we start drifting towards things that will ultimately destroy us. These false lights, money, 
success, family, reputation, pleasure, power, even freedom, they all lead into the dark. They all lead down a path that will end in our destruction and in our isolation from God forever. But, John says, Jesus comes as the true light and gives that light to every man. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that everybody receives Jesus' light and is saved? Certainly not. All you have to do is read the rest of this passage and you get people reject him. Um, rather, John means that when Jesus arrived in our world, his presence does what light always does. It exposes. The light exposes our hearts. It exposes our darkness to us. And it brings us to decision to surrender to the true light or to remain in darkness. Further on down, John in chapter 3, verse 19 says, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Like the rising of the sun, nobody escapes the light. Everybody's got to choose. And as verse 10 and John 3.19 make clear, the vast majority of people prefer the false light, their own darkness. Verses 12 and 13. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called, uh, to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. <clears throat> all right, so think about it. In terms of numbers, Jesus' earthly ministry was not what you would call a success. He ends up with a handful of followers and on his way to execution. Not a great success plan. So did the darkness win? No. There were a few who did receive him and trusted him. For those few, he gave the right to become part of God's family. Uh, never to be alone again. Those few are pulled from darkness into light. They live in God's house, so to speak, and they can be secure in that. God does not kick his kids out of his house once he receives them in. As Jesus says in John 10, 29, no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. God sends his son on a rescue mission into the darkness, and through the sun, he brings children to himself, and he does not let them go. For those whose hope is in the light of Christmas, in this Jesus, we have the right to be called children of God forever. And then back to verse 14, this time the whole thing. The word became flesh and made his glory, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. <clears throat> so how is it, how is all this possible? How is it possible for God to drag people, pull people out of the darkness into his light? It is possible because God sent Jesus, his word, to reveal his glory, his true character, which is, as John says, full of grace and truth. So what does that mean? It means that God's glory shines brightest when rescuing the hopeless. When John uses the phrase full of grace and truth, he is referring to a conversation between God and Moses from Exodus 
uh, chapters 33 and 34. After God punishes Israel for worshiping the golden calf and building a golden calf and that whole stuff, uh, he threatens to withdraw his presence from Israel lest he destroy them. And Moses pleads with him and says, don't go, don't go, you cannot leave us. And God agrees to stay. Um, Mo, uh, and then, and then, Moses, in a move of audacious boldness, says, show me your glory. And God says, okay, fine. And he places Moses in the cleft of a rock to protect him and says, all right, I'm going to show you my glory, but you can only see my back because nobody can see my face and live. And then he proclaims his name and what he's all about to Moses as he passes by. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, the gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love. The Hebrew word there is chesed, which means tender mercy. And abounding in love and faithfulness. The word there is emet, the Hebrew word for truth. In this context, it means covenant faithfulness. And that's what John means by grace and truth, chesed and emet. God's tender mercy and his true faithfulness to his people. John's saying that in Jesus, we actually have seen God face to face, and it does not destroy us. It's actually very good news. At Christmas, God's son comes into this twisted, dark world, not to judge, Jesus says, but to show God's mercy and faithfulness to those who need rescue. How is it possible that we rebels, addicted to darkness as we are, are given the right to become children of God? Really? Because it's not because we're awesome. The Bible makes it really plain that we're not. It's because of God's character shining in Jesus full of grace and truth, full of mercy and covenant faithfulness. It would be a costly mercy. It would cost Jesus his life. He would be faithful, covenantally faithful and merciful to death and beyond. But the results are now that we are now that we are God's people. We have a hope that does not ever fade. So, that's kind of unpacking John 1, 1 through 14. The overall story we get in, this verse, uh, in these verses is that God has sent his creator word into our darkness. This creator word meets resistance from those who should have welcomed him, but they don't because they cling to the darkness. But he has not come for war. Rather, he has come to reveal God's light and glory full of grace and truth. And some do believe him, and they are given the right to be called by God's name, to become part of his family. The darkness doesn't win after all. The light triumphs through his people. All right, so what difference does Christmas, this invasion of light into the darkness through the incarnation, make for any of us? I think uh, knowing these things are or being reminded of things you actually already know but need to be reminded of, makes a profound difference in our attitude towards four different things. 
Number one, our attitude towards God's rule in our lives. Number two, our attitude towards non-Christians. Number three, our attitude towards prayer. And number four, our attitude towards God himself and the paths he leads us on, especially when those paths become difficult. So, number one, our attitude towards God's rule in our lives. Despite what Nick Cave sang a decade or more ago, turns out God is an interfering God, an invading God even. He does not leave us alone, and that is as it should be. But it's easy to forget that. It's, it's too easy to see God's interference in our lives, for instance, the rules he wants us to live by and flourish by, as God being uh, interested in keeping us from fun, from, uh, from living, f- making us live dull and boring and risk-free lives. We never get to do anything fun or exciting. And, um, and that's how non-Christians understand God. He's like the cosmic party killer. The existential wet blanket. And sometimes we feel like that too. And that's when we get restless and God's rule in our lives feels confining. We'd rather not have his interference. We'd rather have our freedom. We'd rather be just left alone. Thank you very much. But when we remember our true predicament, that without God we are drifting towards the darkness, towards self-destruction, And we remember how he, at great expense to himself, launched himself into our darkness to rescue us. We gain a little perspective, don't we? After all, does someone stuck in a submarine, stranded at the bottom of the ocean, wish to be left alone? No! Please interfere! Please invade me. I need help. That is how we ought to understand God's interference in our lives. It is full of grace and truth and wisdom. It pulls us from our own darkness. God deserves gratitude for being a God who will not leave us alone. Number two, our attitude towards non-Christians. Now, non-Christians are not likely to get this. If they do not understand the light, it's very probable that they don't understand their own darkness either. Um, They say, I'm fine. I'm not drifting in the darkness. I'm not falling. You know, I'm fine. And besides, nobody can really rescue us from this anyway, right? Uh, I'm really, I'm having a great time. Don't worry about me. What they need is for us to be patient, loving witnesses to the light, like John the Baptist was in verse 8. Sadly, this is not how Christians, too many Christians of late, have been. Uh, I was scrolling in the social media site Reddit, and somebody posted this question. What was it that turned you off from religion? And I looked at some of the comments. I didn't, I mean, it was 10,000 comments, so I didn't read them all. 
but of the ones I read, by far the most common response was, had to do with uh, Christians, evangelical Christians, saying something hateful and uh, hurtful to these people. While, get this, while considering themselves loving Christians. Saying words that cut deep. Uh, they thought of themselves as loving Christians, but they could not deal with somebody who understands sexuality or reality different than them. Uh, that is not, let me suggest, not being a patient and loving witness to the light. That's just spewing more darkness to people who are already in the dark. Um, Paul in Philippians 2, 14 and 15 says this. Uh, says, do everything without complaining or arguing. Sound like the church? Uh, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. That's the dark. In which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. You cannot shine like a star if you're speaking words of darkness. All right, that's just, that's just common sense. Um, this, this is not what non-Christians need. They need us to be an accurate reflection of the word. We need to reflect that grace and truth that is to be found in Jesus. So in a sense, we too are called to incarnation. We are, uh, we are to incarnate. We are to embody the ones who reflect uh, Jesus, we are, we are God's rescue force. So, I can't believe I have to say this. Love like Jesus loved, right? That sounds really obvious. Um, and, and, and don't give up on the drifting, falling people of the world, the people who are trapped in darkness. Don't give up on them. Now, there may be some here today who do not know this Jesus, who are sure that they have drifted too far out of God's reach. Don't you be too sure, Mr. or Miss. Um, if you want to know God, God can reach you. He's God. So uh, call out to him. Send up a, a signal flare, a beacon or something. Um, search hard for the light. Maybe, I don't know, here's a crazy idea. Maybe talk to the person you're sitting next to. And maybe they can help you find it. All right, third, our attitude towards prayer. If Christmas is true, if God has come to be with us and by his spirit remain with us, then prayer should be a natural part of our lives. I think we don't pray as much as we ought to because we think of God as very far away. But if you are standing right next to someone, you talk to them, right? So it should be with us, especially when trouble strikes. God has made himself close to us. That's the point of John 1. He is standing right next to us. There's a theologian that I love who, uh, who has a phrase, God is as close as your fingers and toes. So talk to him. Um, he knows exactly, because he became human, he knows exactly what you're struggling with. 
He knows your pain, your loneliness, your frustrations, and he, and he is wise and in control. So talk to him. Fourth, our attitude towards God and the paths he leads us on. Sometimes God leads us into difficult circumstances. Sometimes he leads us into places where it feels like we are alone, like we are falling in the darkness. We need to remember that the God we serve is Emmanuel, God with us. The one who took on our flesh. He knows exactly what we're struggling with. He knows our pain. He knows everything. That means, as hard as this can sound, you are exactly where God wants you to be. In fact, he has called you to this exact place, this exact time, this exact set of circumstances. Uh, when I start feeling overwhelmed by life, which is a lot of the time, actually, especially towards the end of the semester, when I'm anxious and worried, I repeat this mantra, God wants me here. He will give me what I need to get through this here. God has called me to this exact place here. God will be with me. I, he will give me. He wants me here, and he will give me what I need to get through this. And I just kind of repeat that until sanity strikes. Um, now, apply that to yourselves. Think about that. Think about a time in your life when you were feeling just overwhelmed, overmatched. Or maybe it's the present. Or maybe it's the future that's coming at you like with the force of an oncoming train. And then think that God will give you exactly what you need for the months and the years and the decades to come. Um, and maybe that something that God will give you is a friend that you can talk to and share your heart with and pray with. I've heard that's something that Christians do for each other, you know, like be the church and stuff. Knowing that, um, knowing that you are under God's protection and provision, you can move forward unafraid. You don't need to give in to heaviness and despair. God came to us at Christmas and he stays with us by his spirit. He is here with us right now and he will give you what we need to serve him. That is freedom. One of my favorite passages in the Bible comes from Psalm 73. The psalmist starts out, envious of the freedom of the wicked. They get to do whatever they want. They even seem to prosper, which goes down really hard with the psalmist. But then he goes into God's temple and then he understands their ultimate trajectory that they are drifting in the darkness towards destruction, that they're headed for judgment for death apart from God. And then he compares that to his own situation. And these are some of my favorite verses. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. And the image I get is of a father crossing a busy street with his kid holding the hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, the part that doesn't fail, and my portion forever. 
What have we to fear? We are not alone. God has come to be with us. Emmanuel, our light in darkness. Merry Christmas.